would be Joseph, who is also a very Christ-like figure. Uh, we do not read of any sins recorded against these two men. They were remarkable men of God, and they're beautiful uh, people to study. But when Joseph starts off, uh, he has some difficulties because of his youth and also probably because of a doting father who put him in an awkward situation. And that's painted for us very vividly uh, in the language of the book of Genesis. I'm reading from the New International Version, chapter 37, following. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And this is the account of Jacob. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his father, with his brothers, the sons of Bela and the sons of Ziplah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. That'll always get you in trouble. Because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made him a rich ornamented robe, and when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, and they could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field together when suddenly my sheaf rose higher and stood upright while all your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. And then he had another dream, and he told it to his brother. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. And when he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the thing in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. And so he said to them, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring back word to me. And so he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. And when Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? And he replied, I am looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers, and he found them near Dothan. But he, they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. 
Come now, and let us kill him, and throw him into one of these cisterns, and say that a ferocious animal devoured him, and then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him out of their hands. Let us not take his life, he said. Do not shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert, and don't lay a hand on him. And Reuben said this in order to rescue him from them and to take him back to his father. And so when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing. And they took him and they threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices and balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. And so when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern, and they sold him for twenty shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took him to Egypt. And when Reuben returned to the cistern and saw Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. And he went back to his brothers and said, The boy is not there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, and they slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they took the ornamented robe back to his father, and they said, We found this. Examine it and see whether it is your son's robe. And he recognized it, and he said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn in pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. And all his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in sorrow will I go down to the grave to my son. And so his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of the Pharaoh's officials, the captain of his guard. Amen. May God add his blessing to our understanding of this part of his word. And now let us worship God with our gifts. The account of Joseph is one of the most remarkable stories in all of the history of literature. I am so glad that the Word of God gives it to us. There is no rabbinical saying that God made man because he wanted to tell a story. And God has communicated his truth through real live people. Joseph really did exist and live. And so did his brothers, and so did their jealousy, and so did their hatred, and so did their, his pride, and so did his father's foolishness. And so did the other things that we will see that transpire in his life. And so they are meant to teach us. And their lessons are applicable today. Though 4,000 years ago may have been the time in which these events transpired, in any psychiatrist's office today, the same sort of weaknesses begin to crop out as he talks to people. A man of long experience in this field said not long ago, 
those persons, and I quote, those persons who come to see me need an inner structure for their lives. They need an inner discipline that they themselves have accepted as having the authority of reality. Anyone knows that the Ten Commandments of God are, best, are the best set of rules ever given for an individual to structure his life by? And yet the trouble is that too many people have learned the commandments and too few people have accepted the authority of God for their own lives. And so we begin with you, and we look for an inner structure, and we see a man by the name of Jacob, who in his old age had a child by Rachel whom he greatly loved, and this child whom he foolishly doted on and gave too much to, but who was evidently a very gifted and talented individual, but who made the mistake, and we need to remember that I read in your hearing a while ago, Joseph, a young man of 17. He was only 17 years old when he went about telling people about his dream. And some of us who have long since passed 17, three or four or five times past 17, uh, uh, are still foolish in not shutting our mouths and letting other people tell their dreams instead of always boring them with our dreams. Uh, they are not always that impressed. And so Joseph uh, did not make himself popular with his brothers by going and telling them that they would all bow down to him, although eventually that does take place. His father chides him about it and marks what has taken place. And then his brothers, who were irked by the uh, beautiful ornamented coat which he receives, and who see him coming out to the field, have him thrown, as you have heard read in your hearing a moment ago, into the pit. I think they wanted to eat lunch, and they couldn't get him quiet long enough to even eat lunch. And so they cast him into the pit and sat down to eat. And then there, of course, is this Reuben who wanted to come back and filch him out. He recognized that he was young and foolish in what he was saying. And then there is another brother who wishes to not be guilty of his blood, and so he is sold into the hand of the Midianite merchants who are coming that way. And we see unfold in this remarkable drama all of those things that go together that make up a tremendous story. You see love and jealousy. Uh, you see hate. Uh, you see a type of revenge. And then you see great forgiveness that comes. And you see great adventure that comes forth. And so he is sold and he is taken away into slavery. Joseph goes away and is sold in the verse that we read last in Egypt to Potiphar, one of the Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. And we know the account of how when Joseph had been taken into Egypt, Potiphar, the Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard brought him in from the Ishmael, bought him from the Ishmaelite, and the Lord was with Joseph. That's a key phrase. Because here we see that in the midst of his adversity, he reckons on the providence of God. 
God had spoken to his wily old father who had learned many lessons the hard way, and evidently some of that youngster's learning had taken into an account that he had a special relationship to God, the same sort of covenant relationship which we have in a much more refined way and started to teach in our young people here. The Lord was with Joseph and prospered him. He lived in the house of his Egyptian master, and when his master saw that the Lord was with him, his master, the pagan master, saw that the Lord was with him. He was grace. The word really is charisma. He was charismatic in that sense. God gifted him in a special way. There was a special charm about him that everything that he gave uh, to Joseph succeeded in everything that he did. And Joseph found favor in his eyes, and he became the attendant to Potiphar, and he put him in charge of his whole household, and he entrusted to his care everything that he owned from the time he put him in charge of the household. And of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian, and he blessed that household because of Joseph. Does God bring a blessing to a place because you are faithful to God? Joseph was faithful, and God brought a blessing to his pagan master and to his household. Then we know that an evil thing begins to take place. We read that Joseph was well-built and handsome. And after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, My master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he is entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? It took Carl Minninger to write a book, Whatever Happened to Sin. It almost seems old-fashioned to see here a virtuous man, and yet what God can do with a virtuous and an honest man, and what he does with this person, Joseph, here. She, of course, persisted, and though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even to be with her. He could have rationalized it in all kinds of ways. He could have used sophisticated casuistry, He could have thought that he could have done so many more important things if he were just in a greater position of prominence. But he had what that psychiatrist talked about a moment ago, an inner commitment to God. And he would not do this great wickedness. He called it what it was. I don't know how many times I've had people talk to me who have gotten involved in some immoral relationship And I can still remember one individual bursting into tears and saying, how could something so beautiful turn out to be so terrible and so awful now? Because now families were breaking up and children were affected and parents were affected and other people were affected. 
The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard, and it is. And the way of the righteous may seem hard, but in the end God will reward that, that one who is righteous, and Joseph is righteous here, and there is nothing more important than I can say to young people in the beginning of school in that you set your priorities and you keep them. Any old piece of garbage can float down the stream, but it takes backbone to go against the current and to stand for what is right. And so Joseph does stand for what is right, even though she tempts him day after day. And then in a malicious lie, when she saw that he had left his... Uh, one day when he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants were inside, she caught him by the cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. Matthew Henry has a quaint uh, little comment. He was an old Puritan um, a commentator who wrote in the, in the 1700s. And uh, he said that it is better to to leave your coat behind than to leave your character behind. Uh, he left his coat behind, but he did not leave his character. His character was intact. He ran out of the house. And when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants and said, Look, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me. But I screamed, and when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She lied. And then, of course, when his master returns and hears this lie, his master is infuriated because he believed that the lie which this woman had spoken, and again adversity seems to strike at Joseph. He is placed very unjustly in prison. But an interesting thing is told to us that even though he is placed in prison, the Lord is with him. The Lord is with him in prison. And then we come to the man that is of the special interest to me. Sometime later, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt offended their master. And the king of uh, Egypt, Pharaoh, was angry with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the same prison where Joseph was confined. And the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, and he attended them. And after they had been in custody for some time, each of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who, had been, who were being held in prison, had a dream. They had the dream the same night, and each dream had a meaning of its own. And when Joseph came to them the next morning, he saw that they were dejected. And so he asked Pharaoh's officials who were in his custody uh, with him, uh, with his master's house, why are your faces sad? We both had a dream, they answered, and there is no one to interpret. And then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? He gives the credit to God. Tell me your dreams. And so the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream. And the result of his dream meant that the cupbearer would be put to death, and Joseph had to frankly tell him so. But the butler was told that he would be restored to his office. And it came to pass that in just a few days it happened just that way. 
The cupbearer was, the baker was put to uh, death, and the cupbearer was restored. He was a butler, and he was uh, put uh, back to his position. And this interesting verse occurs, the cupbearer, however, that's like a butler, the cupbearer, however, did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. And that's what I wanted us to think a little bit about this morning. Joseph had to go through the trial of hardship. Then he goes through the trial of being forgotten here. For two more years, he is in prison. And then Pharaoh has a terrible dream and cannot find the answer to it. And it is only then that this cupbearer remembers that Joseph had correctly interpreted his dream and calls it to the attention of the king. Now, the thing that strikes me is why did this cupbearer forget? And have you been guilty of forgetting someone who has shown to you a kindness? An old minister was in my office yesterday, and he told me sometimes when you're talking to young people, especially at the first of school, tell them not to forget to write a letter home to thank someone who made it possible for them to go to school. It's so easy to forget. Joseph had done a great favor for this person, but he forgot. How many people do that? When they get to a place where they could reward those who have been good to them or remember them, they forget. They forget uh, their friends who have helped them. They forget their family who may have sacrificed terribly in order to send them off to school. Sometimes when we go away from school, we're tempted to forget about God. No one can tell us to go to Sunday school or church so often here from the house. No one can tell us to read our Bible or pray. And so we tend to forget about God. The man who forgot teaches a lesson to us all, a lesson that we ought to remember, a lesson that we ought to remember and not to forget. We ought to thank those in our family who have helped us and have sacrificed for us. Some of us would be dead apart from the kindness and the love which our wives have shown us in times of sickness and trouble, or our husbands, or our mothers. When I look in my own family and I think of my, there are seven of us children, and my mother is 89 years old and I hope to go back home before long and see her. I have an older brother who is one of the finest men I've ever known. He is a professor of physics who taught physics about 41 or two years. A Presbyterian elder, the clerk of the session for years, but above everything else, a man of God and of faithfulness in his prayer life and of a disciplined, clean, honest life. I can't say that about all of my family, but I can certainly say it about him. But I can remember him so well because when he was 16, he had pneumonia. And this was in the days before the advent of the uh, drugs which are so effective now in treating pneumonia. They had to do a terrible operation on his back and remove some ribs and drain a lung and he lost part of one and he was all but dead. 
My mother was working in the Depression in a factory. We had moved in off of the farm, and my father was dead. She would go to sleep at, during the daytime when she was home. She worked all night, and she would go to sleep with her hand on my brother's hand. If he so much as winced or whined from pain, she was awake like that to tend to him. I've never forgotten that. And the one brother that I have today who is at my mother's house every single day of the world who calls her is that brother. All during World War II, as an officer in the military, I remember seeing the little V-mail letters that came back from him wherever he went. He never forgot. He's been uh, a model to the rest of us to make us want to be more faithful. He remembered. Has someone been kind to you, and have you been willing to show that kindness and that love to them, or have you been willing to forget? David uh, Joseph successfully resisted the temptation of this woman because he had already made up his mind in his heart that he had that inner structure that the psychiatrist talked about that makes the difference when the show falls and gives in to some great sin. It usually isn't because it struck all of a sudden. It was because there was a rottening process going on all the time underneath. But he had made up his mind ahead of time. And so when this man does finally remember, Joseph is brought out of the prison and his story continues. He is able to save the entire kingdom of Egypt. And not only is he able to save that kingdom, but he is able to save all of his brothers and all of his race through the great providence of God and the great faithfulness of God. They come there to him, these brothers, to buy corn because a famine has hit their land. And you will remember how they do not recognize their brother anymore because he is now thoroughly schooled in the ways of the Egyptians, but his heart is still true to his God, and he recognizes them. And the wonderful thing about him is that he forgives them, and this to me shows a Christ-like quality in Joseph that is something that is remarkable. He does not bear them ill. He speaks those great words, you meant it evil for me, but God meant it for good. And this means that when we are faithful to God, no matter what situations we find ourselves in and have made up our mind that we will not, not be deceived by persuasion, that we will not allow our emotions to stampede us into evil, and that we will not be confused by what the immediate result might be, but we will think that our character and our reputation to God is more important, and that even when we are forgotten by men, the man that we have helped the most, that God is still on the throne, and God raises him back out of that trouble, and he is remembered and promoted by God, and then he goes through the test, not only of adversity and the test of temptation and the test of that disappointment in prison, but he now goes through the test of success. Success is a tremendous test. 
and ver for every one person who fails in adversity. It seems to me a thousand will fail in success. I talked to a couple of men the first of the week who are worth millions upon millions upon millions of dollars. And one of them was, was buying some things. He bought too many things, in fact. And he said to his friend, uh, he said, well, I don't chase any other women. I don't uh, gamble. I don't uh, have any racehorses. So if I want to buy these things, what's wrong with it? And his other friend, who is a very strict Christian man, who is also quite wealthy, said, well, I don't see why you ought to get any medal for running around, not running around on your wife. You ought not to do that anyway. He said, I don't see why you ought to get any medal for not doing things that are wrong. You ought not to do them. You belong to Christ. And there was a young man listening, a teenager, to the conversation. He said the second man made more sense. He had an inner commitment, an inner commitment that made a difference. I saw a young person who would have been one of the leading 100 young men in all of the state of Florida. Just two years ago, I got a telephone call at my house. He had died from snorting cocaine at a party on a Friday night. He was dead on arrival at the hospital. I knew him and loved him very much. It was a terrible shock to me. He couldn't handle the success and the money and the fame that he had. And I often wondered why he had to take cocaine to anesthetize himself against his success. He couldn't handle it. But David was able here to handle, uh, Joseph was able to handle what he went through and he handled it very well indeed. He handled it to the point that he forgave his brothers and not only forgave them, but saved his father's household. And having saved his father's household, he brought to all of Egypt blessing and he brought salvation to that race. And he gave us another example of the great forgiveness of Christ. And then when I think about the one we must never, never forget. We must never forget our Lord Jesus. Those of us who have been studying the Gospel of John in prayer meeting, and we won't be able to have prayer meeting this coming week either on Tuesday or Wednesday because of the convocation here on Wednesday night. We have come now in the place of the prayer meeting where we have studied in the Gospel of John in detail the arrest and the trial of Jesus. I don't think I've ever been moved as much as I have this year in studying the arrest and the trial of Jesus. Because until I got into this study, I did not realize how utterly unfair it was. How all of the laws of Jewish fairness were violated and how he was so cruelly and unfairly tried and lied against and though he was reviled, did not revile again, and he suffered all of that unfairness. And Peter, who was a witness to it, 
later in writing 1 Peter to suffering Christians in Rome, said to those who were being tried by fire then, Remember how Christ suffered, and though he was reviled, reviled not. And when I thought about that, it made me think I should not be so hurt at things that come against me which are unfair when Jesus did not do that. He responded with love. And then, during the course of this study, I listened to a tape by Charles Swindoll, who is one of the finest preachers in America today. He's a preacher out on the West Coast, and he told this, and I copied it, and with it I closed. He said, while at Trinity Seminary, interviewing men for an internship here at the church, I had a young man who came and told a true but intriguing story to me. As a seminary student, he hadn't had much experience in the ministry. And after, being, after I'd asked him about his background, all he could say is that all I have in the way of ministry is some discipleship ministry, which came about in a strange way. He said, last year, when the school year came to a close, I didn't have a church that I could go to and serve. I didn't have anyone who wanted me to come and work with them in Christian work. And so I simply asked God in prayer to make me available to whatever his will would be. And then I began to check the want ads in the paper because as time went by I had to have money and I found that there was a bus driving job made available to me. I hired out in South Chicago as a bus driver. I drove the bus, and before a week passed, some thugs got on the bus and didn't pay. They sat in the back of the bus and jeered and mocked. The next day, the same thing happened, and they didn't pay. The third day they got on, they didn't pay, and by the fifth or the sixth day, I decided that I didn't have to put up with that. And so I decided I'd call an officer to the bus and make them pay. I saw a policeman about a block away. The fellows had got on with their same procedure. I stopped down by the block and asked the officer to get on board. I told him the story. I said, these fellows in the back haven't paid, and they haven't paid for several days. Would you at least make them pay for today? The officer did, but unfortunately, he got off the bus at the next corner. When the door of the bus closed, that's the last thing I remember. When I woke up, I was in a pool of blood. Two of my teeth had been knocked out. My trousers had been cut open. My pocketbook was stolen. I was confused and disillusioned. I remember praying to God, is this the only kind of ministry you have for me? I got home somehow, and I got the bus turned in and got the rest of the day off. I went to the hospital and got patched up. And as I thought about this, I said, I'm not going to let them get away with it. And so an interesting chain of events took place as officers helped me round up those very fellows. 
I took them to court, and on the day of hearing, we stood before the court, and the judge listened carefully and decided that the fellows were guilty. They didn't have any money to pay their bond, and so they had to spend some time in jail. And suddenly, I realized something, and here the seminarian said, is my chance. I said, Your Honor, may I speak for a few moments? The judge looked puzzled and said, You may. He said, I would like for you to tally up all the time these fellows would be spending in jail, and I'd like to go to jail in their behalf. The judge was confused, and he said, That's highly irregular. It's never been done before. But this seminarian replied, Oh, yes, it has, Your Honor. Nineteen hundred years ago. And then for four minutes, I told them about the gospel. And to make a long story short, he was able to witness to three of those men who came to faith in Christ, and one later in prison came to faith in Christ. But you see, it was a costly ministry. Ministries that are real are always costly. But they are authentic, and they are real. They lead us to a mind like that of Christ. I would like for us to conclude our worship by singing the hymn printed on the bulletin, May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day.